Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast. I'm not sure why I'm laughing. Um, I'm talking to Rita Wing, who is the founder and CEO of a company that I couldn't pronounce at first, but I got now. It is called Jezu, which reminds me, what does that mean again? It means thank you in Burmese. You're very welcome. Um, <laughs> Oh, God, you got me in this mood. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it's going to be one of those podcasts, huh? <laughs> yeah, who knows where this is going to go, but it's going to be good. Um, so let's let's do this again, right? So we were talking about nicknames or surnames and main names, right? So can you tell me the naming convention in Bur- – do you call it Burma, Myanmar? What do people call it when they're there? So it's Myanmar. Okay. Um, the language and when you when you talk about the people who live here, you usually would refer to them as Burmese. Got it. Though in, in technical terms, Burmese is actually one of the hundred ethnic groups here. Uh, but because it was called Burma for so long, it right. was still called the Burmese language, the Burmese people. But the country is Myanmar. Got it. And how long how long have you been there? Uh, almost five years, which is staggering to me as I sit here and, and reflect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, wow, it is a long time, right? And, yeah. And where are you from originally? So I'm, I was born in Vietnam. I was one of the boat people that fled in the middle of the night. Well, my parents fled and took me with them. I love that. Really? So, <laughs> uh, so that, means yeah. you're, that means you're 1970-something. So that's cool. Yes. But that's really interesting. And I've met uh, quite a few people. And forgive me for interrupting you, but that means you literally like ran away from the country probably in 1975 or 1976, Yeah. 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 Exactly. Actually, ours was a little bit later. My dad ended up hiding in the in the jungles of um, the south of Vietnam, where I'm from, from the Delta, uh, for a few years before we managed to get it out, uh, get out of the country. So it took us took us about 14 tries in a couple of years. But so I was a little bit later later than most. I didn't leave until 1979, so it was a few years after the fall. Yeah, but I I want people to understand this, right? Like you said, it took you 14 tries. Like we forget today. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So today, Vietnam is just like a hip place where it's like Ho Chi Minh City and then there's Hanoi up north and like there's a big tech scene and Mm -hmm. but people forget that like in 1979 still people were like trying desperately and I presume there was a lot of money changing hands each time actually just to try to get out of the country and get to Canada or the United States or Australia or wherever it was, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is, I went back to Vietnam. I traveled back a lot from 95 onwards, but I moved back to Vietnam in 2009. And if you're talking about changes, I mean, the amount of changes that I see now, even versus 2009, is staggering. Yes. Mm -hmm. So my first time in Vietnam was in 1992. Oh, yeah. I remember what it was like back then. It was rough. It was, I think that's probably the best word I'm going to be able to use to describe it. Yeah, and remember, Americans were not allowed to travel directly into Vietnam. And I like to tell the story that, you know, they didn't stamp my passport because they legally couldn't stamp my passport. They, like, stapled something in, and when I left the country, they just unstapled it and took it out. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm Canadian. I have a Canadian passport. Right. So it was a bit easier for me. But we didn't go back until after 95 because... My father was an intelligence officer in the South Vietnamese Army, which is why we had to flee. Wow. And so there was always risk of persecuting him or putting him in jail. Sure. Uh, so we really weren't able to come back until until um, until way, way, way later. Um, and then I, I went back many, many, many times, like about a dozen times between then and when I finally moved in 2009. Um, was this something your, your mom and dad talked about when you were growing up? 
Well, my dad did, right? Well, so my mom always just was one of those stoic, you know, let's move forward and keep going. My father had a lot more emotion around what in the South Vietnamese culture we call losing the country. It's it, you would call it maknuk, which literally means losing the country. And he had a, a lot more emotion tied around that for for obvious reasons. Right. Uh, so he he talked about things like that quite a bit more. Um, he talked about his past quite a bit more. Um, he lost a lot more, to be fair, as yeah. well, you know, in, in, in addition to being a, a soldier and an officer. He also came from a very, very wealthy family, right. which, you know, we obviously lost everything after the war. Um, whereas my mom was from a very small village. She grew up very poor. And, you know, most Vietnamese women, she, she's typical of that. And it's just sort of like, this is this is what it is. So let's just keep going. And right. there's no... There's no point in, in moaning over the past and what is lost. Um, yeah, I mean, if, you'll, if you'll allow me, right, as an outsider to say, there's a certain nobility in the sort of stoicism of, and I'm generalizing, and I, I'm, I know of I'm course. generalizing, but I think there's a certain nobility in the stoicism of, you know, uh, an Asian woman. It's just like mm-hmm. deeply embedded strength Yeah, that, that I think I is really awesome. Yeah, I would agree. And and my mom, and, and even my father, but my mom was certainly, um, you, you witness that. Like, I mean, there's a really good story in our family, because, you know, every, every family has stories. My last brother, so my mom had six kids, and the very last one was almost 10 months before he, he surfaced, because he was just lazy and didn't want to come out. And there's a story of my mom, like her water breaking, and she continued to wash and wipe the floors and mop the house until my father got home from work and took her to the hospital. Like, it just... <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, I'll get to that later. I've got other things to yeah, do exactly. first. Yeah, exactly. You know, whatever. It, this is going to happen, but first got to finish cleaning the house. <laughs> but do you, and do you think... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, but it's so beautiful. And, I like, do you think either consciously or subconsciously that that impacts you even to today? Do you know, I like to think about this, too. You know... Mm. I'm third generation American, right? So yes. my parents' parents grew up like in Eastern Europe, obviously, right? Oh, and, mm-hmm. you know, my my grandfather on my mother's side, you know, according to the story, whatever is true or not, but even if it's partially partially true, right, it's interesting in and of itself. And you know, my grandfather walked across like Russia and Ukraine to get to the coast and get on a boat and ended up in Boston when he was seven years old. Let's say he was yeah. 10, but who knows, right? Mm-hmm. But it... I heard that story when I was growing up and maybe even more so when I was older, I just think, okay, whatever issue that I have today, isn't that, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally get it. There is when, when you grow up the way that, the way that we grew up, you know, like as, as for, especially for me with first generation, it's a lot closer. I think, um, things just, Shit just doesn't get to you as a, a, well, it can't. yeah, like it's just put it all in perspective. It's so much worse. <laughs> and then, especially with us growing up, it was like you know your your relatives are literally starving to death right. across the world. Like, and that's no joke. No. They are literally yeah. starving to death across yeah. the world. So you finish that rice that we put in front of you. You exactly. know, like you don't you don't bitch about food. You eat what is put in front of you because you're lucky to. Yeah, I mean, I just picture you coming home from school one day and being like, Dad, I cannot do this. I give up. I cannot no. do algebra. And I'm not saying you would do this, but I'm just saying. No, like, of course. But you'd come home and your dad would be like, you must be kidding me. 
<laughs> but it means you can't. That's not even. It. Yeah, that's not even an option. Right. That's well, the point. That you house. know that. Though. <laughs> Right. You you just don't you don't give up in our house. It just doesn't. I mean, and it it really has served me well as an entrepreneur. I will say, but it, it's it, it wouldn't even have been something I could have thought to go home and say. Right? You just it, it would never have occurred to me to go home and say I give up. This is too hard. There's just no way that that would have been a conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the thought of it is actually more than comical. Right. And for me, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't even imagine what my father's face would look like. That, that's what, that. exactly what I was thinking. Like, if this was video, you'd see me kind of cocking my head a little to the left, closing one eye a little bit and just being like, not even a word, just that face. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So where, where are you in the pantheon of your family? Are you oldest, middle? I'm, I'm the second oldest, actually. Okay. Um, so my oldest sister lives in Singapore with her family. And then there's me, and then so there was a brother. There was a brother between us um, who passed away during the war. He was two, so he died before I was born. Oh my god! Uh, and then there was me, and then there's a brother in Toronto, a sister in Salt Lake City, and another brother in Vancouver. We all grew up in Vancouver, by the way. So right. That's where home base is. So, so how did you get involved in like how did you get involved in all this stuff? Oh my God, like totally by accident. So uh, I, I, I grew up and worked in technology basically coming out of university and largely by accident actually. I just, I got a job with a company called at the time Crystal Reports, which is now an SAP company. Okay. Uh, and I just started very early in technology and, and continued to stay in it. Um, prior to moving to Asia, I was living in... Um, uh, I was working at Electronic Arts, which is uh, yeah, a game company. EA. Yeah, yeah, EA, the, the big gaming company, and was running their sort of global online initiatives for several of their, um, their um, what are they called, games, <laughs> franchises, sorry. Right, right. <laughs> what are they called again? Franchises. Uh, so like Need for Speed is a good example of one of the ones that I worked on for years and years and years. And uh, my dad passed away really suddenly, and I decided that I just really wanted a break. Um, I was very corporate America. I was definitely on the right path. I was, I was loving what I was doing. I was challenged, and it was all good. Um, but then my dad just died really suddenly, and I just needed a break. So I went back to Vietnam, um, partly as a pilgrimage, but mostly just from a just a healing perspective and um, met a founder there, an American founder who had started VNG. Um, so he, Brian Pels, who's actually quite well known in Vietnam, um, and I met and he convinced me to come and work with him on his second startup, um, which is called Skunkworks. And that was my first exposure to the startup world. I knew nothing about it. I didn't, I'd never even heard the term angel investing at that point. So this was in 2009. What was it called? You said Skunkworks. Yeah, it was called Skunkworks. It yeah. was a Vietnam company that was doing an app um, around, do you remember back in the craze of location-based apps, like the, the check-ins and the four squares yep. and, and all of that? Yeah. Yep. So we were doing we were doing something similar um, based out of Vietnam, but for an international market. And then the app never, I mean, it did go live, but it never really went anywhere. But at the time, I had told Brian I would give him one year. And um, about 14 months later, I, I, I left him. But he had, um, he had given me this exposure to this new world that I just fell in love with. I just loved how 
impactful you could be and how cool it was um, in, in terms of, you know, I was, I was talking to one of the EA VPs shortly after I started um, working at the startup and he's like, well, what's the difference? I mean, you work 14 hours here, you work 14 hours there. What's, what's, what's the, the difference? difference? Where do I start? I know. And I said, you know what, Keith, I don't wake up feeling like, or I don't go home at the end of the day feeling like someone's just beating the hell out of me because yeah, exactly. working at EA is soul destroying. Thank you working so much. That's the term I use. No, that is. Do you? I I, I've that. said it so many times. I'm like, my I worked in finance, right, for twenty something years. I'm like, it almost destroyed my soul. It took me five years to find myself again. I'm yeah. not kidding. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And I, I couldn't do I couldn't do it again. There's no way I could no go way. back to another big company. You're unhirable. And I don't mean that in yeah, a bad way. I really am. You're unemployable I I, because because you wouldn't let it happen, not because you don't have the skills. It's just like you'd go in and they'd be like, Okay, well, we want you to be in a four o'clock and for the meeting on Friday you're like oh my god I already finished all that stuff yeah I know but we still have to have the meeting you're like oh, I'm out of here yeah not doing it no. yeah it's a twist of time yeah I know and, and, and you're right though and unemployable is exactly right I would be absolutely unemployable if I went home and it's funny because sometimes I get one of those big gaming companies uh, Disney EA Microsoft they do reach out to me every once in a while just because I know a lot of the executive producers because of my past yep. and they're like hey you know what you're doing and it's like no dude you don't want me I'm I'm I'm, I'm broken now <laughs> <laughs> or fixed. either way you look at it right yeah so this is how I ended up this is how I ended up in the startup space and after a couple of years in Vietnam, I just was really bored. Uh, and I knew I didn't want to go back to North America uh, because that just the life that just wasn't appealing. Um, and someone told me, oh, you should go over to Myanmar and check things out. And I was like, well, it's a bit early. What but year, still, what, I, what year was that? This was 2012. Okay, that's really early. Yeah, it was early. I mean, they really had no internet here at all. Um, the SIM cards were not available. I mean, they were hundreds and hundreds of dollars, and um, phones didn't work. There was no ATMs in the country. It was really early. What was the political situation like, though, as well? Uh, it was it was it was thawing. Um, so it was in 2012 that Thun Sen took over as the pseudo democratic pseudo government. Right. Um, right. Uh, sorry, pseudo military government. And so it was during that time that things were thawing. Though there had been some progress previous to that. It was right. really in 2012 13 that you started to see a real shift in the political atmosphere here. And you have to remember, too, that this was during all of the Arab Spring craziness. And I had been to Egypt previous, like uh, prior, that same year, I had been to, to, to Egypt a few months previous. And the what you were seeing over in, in the Middle East and in Egypt was this bottom-up bottom up movement that was, um, you know, crazy and full of conflict. Whereas in Myanmar, you were seeing a top-down movement. Yeah, massively top-down, yeah. Right, and you and the thing is, it's so rare to see such um, political and economic and social change happen in such a small period of time with no conflict, which is what was happening here, and that's what was exciting to me. Is I really wanted to be part of that and to witness it, um, and and it really was a top-down movement for sure. It was, and it was dramatically different than what was happening in the rest of the world at that time. So, what were the conversations like with your family? You know, your brothers, your sisters, your mom. When you said, <laughs> you know, there was just a conflict-free transition of power in <laughs> in a neighboring country to Vietnam, right? I mean, they must have been incredulous anyway, just watching it and thinking. <laughs> yeah. 
Are you really so going to do this, right? Most had to Google me and Mark. Right. They didn't actually know where <laughs> they didn't know what the hell I was talking about anyway. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, my mom, my mom's, you know, primary concern was that it was like North Korea and yeah, they were yeah. going to imprison me and, and, and right. stuff like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I largely left her in the dark. If I'm being honest, she thought I was in, in Vietnam for most of most of 2013 and 14. <laughs> Because she really, like, I mean, she really was struggling with me living in Vietnam even because she just thought, oh, my God, you know, no one's there to take care of you and, right. and, and stuff like that. Um, so she had already struggled with it. So she thought most of my time in, in those years were spent in Vietnam anyway. Um, so it's just better. It's just better that way. It's, it's more yeah, peaceful. I have a mother. I know what that's like. Yeah. So, and, and luckily, she won't ever listen to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's bad for me, but good for you. But I get it. <laughs> yeah. So, as as um as my siblings, they were you know they were concerned, but it was as my one of my sisters said, it's so typical of me to pick the most crazy situation I could possibly find and parachute my ass in there. Good stuff. Yeah, so they weren't that surprised, yeah, and yeah. you know they they checked up quite regularly to make sure I was doing okay. I was still alive. I wasn't in rottings of prison um, as a political you know prisoner somewhere. <laughs> but they were mostly very supportive. My family is great that way. Good for you. When did you yeah. when did you see a sort of technological change where it became not possible, but it just became natural to use Skype, or you could carry an iPhone and. You know, where you could just walk you, around the street and say, oh, my God, I think it's changed since I arrived. You know what? It was, it was almost overnight, Michael. So there was, even when I got here in 2013, there was a clear desire from the locals and from the, from the Burmese to use technology. Right. So many, many, many of them had phones that did not have SIM cards. And what they would do was go to Wi-Fi spots where you could find them and use that. Um, one of my most distinct memories is when I came here to visit for the very first time. And back then, remember, no ATMs, no SIM cards, no phones, like nothing. I would, I was walking around Shwedagon, which is the huge, huge, huge um, pagoda here. Okay. And I'm walking around up there, and I see all of these monks in these alcoves playing games on their mobile phones. These are unconnected mobile phones. They're just playing games on them. And it was a really, like, it was a, a really big moment for me in terms of I, I need to be part of this. I need to witness what is going on here. Um, so that was a, like, there was a very much a gradual, like, by the time I got there, there was already a desire for it. As to a turning point, there was in 2015, 2000, and was it 15? Yeah, I think it was 2015. Um, the Ordu, which is the first of the two foreign providers launched their services and you know offered 3g and offered a new sim card for a dollar fifty so that's a, that's, that's the telco right mass yes yes it's uh, the one from qatar so the government here had issued two foreign licenses one to telenor from norway and yep. one to urdu from from qatar so urdu launched first and it was in september 2000 or end of august 2015 and it was a massive titanic shift in what was going on this world. Like, massive. What's like giving everybody water or air. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, I mean, you, you know, like my SIM card that I have on my phone cost me $350 and all of a sudden they right. were a dollar fifty. Right. And that is, you know, extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, 
you know, they sold, I think the numbers, and you'll have to, you'll have to go back and Google, or I would have to go back and Google this, but it was something extraordinary, like one million SIM cards in six hours or something stupid like that. Um, And it was only being sold in Yangon at the time in a couple of stores, but it was just everyone was dying for it. Um, I used to always compare what we were doing in um, in Myanmar in technology at the time as the people who were sitting inside of the store stocking shelves and everyone is standing outside on Black Friday waiting. Like it's Thanksgiving yeah. dinner and yeah. everyone is standing outside of the Apple store waiting for the store to open. Um, and that's what it felt like. But it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Like if you th- And again, I'm just going to keep going back to this because I love the um, I love the dichotomy. You know, your mom and dad get a bunch of kids together, try to escape from the country 14 times, right? Yeah. And then, you know, who knows how many years later, but a couple of decades later, you're sitting at the forefront of a massive political and technological change that's exciting. Like, you can feel it. It's palpable, yeah. right? Like, you're getting goosebumps when you think, oh, my God, this went from 350 to 150? Because you know what that means. It's not just a cost difference. It's just like it's a paradigm change in the way people get to live. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and there are there are very few opportunities in our life to witness something like That's that. That's my point, right? So, so it the, was really interesting. Yeah, and I mean yeah. you, you didn't read about it on the news, you know what I mean? You were there. Yeah. yeah. And it's why I stayed. Because I knew it was coming. I mean, it's not always been easy, Michael, but it has sure been interesting. It, there's been a couple of big, big shifts in the Myanmar um, side, like in, in terms of technology, but that is probably the biggest one that has happened over the, the, the modern history over the last sort of five or ten years. Well, it's just the, it's, it's just the birth of it, right? Yeah, it was the beginning, and um, you know, the the argument will be made that there are there was technology prior, there was some content prior, there was some stuff. Sure, there were, but in, in a in a way that is, you know, like we're not talking about 350 versus 150, you're talking about $350 versus $1.50. Yeah. I mean, let's just stop and talk about the magnitude of, of that for a second, right? And right. a year before me, that same, same SIM card would have cost $4,000. Yeah. It, it, it's astronomically different. Um, it was really interesting. So, and that's not that long ago. No, no, I'm not that old. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's not that wasn't the point. Don't do that to me. That was not the point. The point I'm was. Kidding. It was only a few years ago. Yeah. It just in the context of Myanmar, right? It was just that's like yeah. three or four years ago. But yeah. in three or four years, it tells you just how rapidly technology can have an impact on what on what a country's um, ecosystem looks like. Yeah. And um, what I was paying for, like what you paid for data and what you were paying for your SIM card even a couple of years ago versus what you pay now, right? It's just, it's changed so dramatically and continues to change actually. You know, there's, yeah. my, my data continues to lower. I used to pay uh, the internet here, I used to pay as much as I paid in Canada. And Canada is not cheap, right? It's like $50, $60 a month. Yep. Uh, and now it's closer to what I was paying in Vietnam, which is closer to $5 a month. And you're talking about a super blazing fast 4G network here because no one's on it. Well, no one's on it, first of all. But second of all, there's no legacy system out there either. This is one of the great things for me about countries like, you know, Myanmar, Vietnam as well. You know, no place is perfect. But the reality is that they're not dealing with legacy POTS, right? Plain old telephone system systems. And they're not dealing with any of that stuff. So it means that whatever fiber goes into the ground, and it's more likely in the ground than in the sky... It's yeah. just so fast and so 
Do you know what I mean? It, it's not yeah. even a change. It's just like it's just like I said. It's like having a river come into a town where there was no water. That's right. And you know, the Telenor CEO, the first one, he, he's gone now, but he told me, and I always remember this. This is the first time in the history of the world that a telecommunications network was put up data first. Yeah, data first, exactly, right? right. So that's, and that's that, amazing. That has never happened in the world before. This is the first time that's ever happened. Wow, I mean, just think because about Because data is so ubiquitous right now, and, and why would Telenor or do build voice first, right? Well, yeah, I mean... Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought I, about I it. always bring that up. Yeah, I'm just stopping because you've made me pause and just try to think about what the consequences of that are, like what it means. It means they. And what it, sorry, what it means for and what it means for these these people who live in more rural areas of Myanmar. I mean, you're not just you don't just have a SIM card to phone and join the local economy. You have a SIM card that takes you into the internet to allow you to join the global economy. Global economy, right? That's overnight. what I was going to say. You know, the yeah. first phone that we had in our house when I was a kid, right? It was. You know, the dial phone. Yeah, I, but it was I like have a, one too. Yeah, and, and sorry, um, you know, but my parents' first phone was a party line, right? So they shared it with the five families around them. And then, you know, as it got more advanced, we had our own phone. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you had port, not portable phones, but like wireless phones inside the house. <laughs> but you still have to pay for every line. And now you're talking about they were called that, cordless. Yeah, cordless. They were Thank cordless. you. Remember that? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, now you're having people go. I want to say online, but like get connected first, not for voice, but for data instantaneously, right? And remember when I'm going to say we, but I'm probably a decade and a half, if not more older than you are. But, but if you think about it, like even for me to call outside of my state, right? So calling from Massachusetts to Connecticut was really mm -hmm. expensive mm -hmm. and scheduled. Like, dad, can I call my friends in Connecticut? No. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? And if you were, if you were, a I bad, remember that. Yeah, if you were yeah. a bad kid, you had to sneak it. But now it's just like I get on Skype or WhatsApp or Snapchat or whatever, and I can call. Yeah. But that's the impact that it had on Myanmar. That's why we're talking about this, right? In the sense that some kid, even an adult, but like who in the old days would have had a pen pal, you know, in Oklahoma, now has direct interactivity, interconnectivity with the rest of the world instantaneously. Yeah, and these are these are people that are actually much more familiar with sure. chat apps and you know chat chat calling whatever uh, VoIP apps um, than they are with with voice. Um, and as a matter of fact, you know, like if you think about what we like the evolution and all of the legacy stuff that we dealt with in Myanmar, it was much 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 more expensive to call or to text than it was to use data. So it was volume-based pricing for the longest time. That did not change until Ordu um, launched in 2015. Prior to that, everything was, was time-based. Right. So yeah. you know how we pay per meg right now? Well, back then in Myanmar, you were paying per minute. <laughs> and it, no, I know it's ridiculous well, because I'm, I'm it's so because slow. I'm laughing because my first connection to the internet was by the minute as well. <laughs> okay, yeah, back when you were doing the dial-up, right, with the funky sound. I remember that. <laughs> the modems, yep, the funky yeah. sounds. So, so here they were doing it by minute, and the the voice, like when I first got here, I think what the pricing was was that the voice. So, like if you were calling, it was fifty chat a minute, but data was only like twenty five or something. It was half of that, and so what people were doing was they would buy a smartphone, which is you know less than a hundred dollars. They would install Viber because right. Viber was the yep. only chat app that you could validate and authenticate without a phone number. Because oh. 
Because every other chat app back then, you had to have a phone number because they'd send you an SMS. Remember them? Yeah. So Viber was the only one that allowed you to authenticate against an email. So they would all download Viber. And then if I wanted to reach out to you, Michael, I would call you, like I would voice call you, and you would not answer. What you would do was you would go to a Wi-Fi area, you would turn open Viber, and you would call me and talk to me on Viber. Now, the quality was crap, but so was voice quality. So it, it was rather irrelevant. Yeah, so interesting. They, yeah. So the, the locals here, I mean, if you're talking about legacy stuff, I mean, they are not weighed down by phone and SMS because they were they were using chat and VoIP apps prior to ever having a SIM card and data. I love this. It reminds <laughs> me of when I was in high school and my buddy would go over to like one of our girlfriend's houses and throw a stone up at the window. <laughs> Isn't that what like calling without answering is like? And then you just go to the Wi-Fi spot and have a real conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like humans don't change that much. No, truly. I mean, in, 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 in terms of, like, you do what you need to do in, yeah. in the easiest way possible, right? Like, that, what's, what's that saying? Like, um, Necessity is the mother of invention. That innovation, correct, yeah. yes. And that you saw here again and again on the streets every day. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm just trying to get my, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. You know, we thought for the longest time that, um, you know, Thailand was emerging or frontier style, but it's got oh. nothing on, it's got nothing on Myanmar. No, it's it's just it's happened so quickly. That's why, like you know, I I largely witnessed a lot of the the yeah. emergence of the Vietnam world as well, and right. I was part of it for a little while. So the years that I was there was really as the Vietnam texting was starting to pick up. When I first got there in two thousand and nine, it was there, but there was no real. No, um, there was nothing there though. It I mean, was, there was nothing there. Correct. Um, and even witnessing that and seeing where it is today, Myanmar is moving at a pace. Certainly, it is not caught up to Vietnam. There's no question about that. Yeah, but it's moving, moving so at a pace that is absolutely staggering, and it's not hampered by a government that is threatened by it. You know, the way in Vietnam, I mean, we were constantly getting our internet cut because you know someone's cut some cord, or Facebook is being blocked, or right. there was a time when the government in Vietnam decided to. Um, block e-commerce and you had to pay, pay you had to pay fines. I mean, there's all kinds of crap that the government was doing back then. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they I, I, you know, to be fair, they're much more positive about the tech sector now, and they're much more supportive. But back then, they weren't. And um, I think that the Myanmar government has not necessarily taken a supportive role, but they sure have not been getting in the way either. Right. So one of the things, sorry, one of the things that Graham and I talk about on one of our other podcasts is that like one of the things that makes a government great is just getting out of the way. They don't necessarily have to have programs or be supportive, but they just have to kind of say, this is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's good. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And, you know, especially when you're when you're focused on technology, it was funny. I was ta- I was sitting at this luncheon, this, you know, ICT government, uh, whatever it was hosted by one of the big um, consultancy firms. And I was one of two entrepreneurs at the table. Everyone else came from, you know, telcos and banks and were like big, heavy, heavy com- companies. And they all spent the large part of the lunch talking about how the government really, really needed to regulate this and regulate that and needed to do this and do that. And I was <clears throat> looking around the room and I was like, you know, we work in technology. Like, it, like technology always leads the regulation and everyone's like no they don't no they don't you definitely need regulation i was like really someone go tell tesla that and and how they're selling their cars or someone go talk to uber and all of their you know their 
their taxi licenses. And right. So all of like there's so many examples where you don't wait for the government to catch up because when and how would you ever get anything done? Yeah, and I mean, I like to go back to the early 1900s in the United States, right, and just say, mm-hmm. you know, all of these steel companies and oil companies, and they did bad things, right, from an employment standpoint and child labor and all this other stuff, but, like, they wouldn't have grown to the extent that they had grown if they had been overrun with regulations. Now, you know, today's we live in a different world, but you're right. If Uber had waited for taxi licenses in all the cities where it wanted to operate, we wouldn't have Uber. And the same thing with Airbnb and the hotel licenses and Absolutely. and Tesla and the um you know the dealerships, right? Because you can't mm-hmm. you can't sell it without a dealership. But all these and all these regulations to be fair exist to protect um vested interests as opposed to consumers. So it is what it is, right? But it's neat to watch something grow unfettered and just the pace at which it can grow you know, like you say, if it, it's like your parents, right? If they watch you and you're crossing the street and they know you're not going to die, they should theoretically just let you cross the street and figure it out for yourself so you understand the risk-taking associated with it. And I think to a certain extent, you know, not to be too philosophical like on a Tuesday afternoon, but governments should do the same thing. Just get out of the way unless it looks like everyone's going to die. Then step in and do your job. <laughs> yeah, or at least put some guidelines in place and then let, let you know, give, give them a big enough sandbox to try yeah. and figure this out. So, so what are you working on? I mean, we spent so much time talking about other things, but like, I'm really curious what you're working on, right? So, what does the oh. investment scene look like there? I've never been to Burma. I've never. Well, that's not fair. In 1998, I actually walked across the border. So, I was in Chiang Rai, <laughs> and I drove to sort of the Golden Triangle, and I literally walked across the border. I don't think I've ever been so scared in my whole life because I had to give my passport to a guy in a booth. That was it. I, I had no record of ever giving it to him. I walked across oh, and I was like, oh my God, I got to get my passport back first and run back into Thailand, right? Which I, I felt like was safe. So <laughs> back then? Yeah, back then. I mean, it was you know 1930 sure. or something. That's what it felt yeah. like. It wasn't really, but... Right. Um, so, okay. So before I get started on what I'm doing, you really must come back so that we can show you Myanmar before it changes oh, to form. Oh, I want right? to. So here's the thing. Yeah. So Graham and I really want to come to Myanmar and find out like what makes because we know it's great right but we won't know what makes it great unless we go and visit so we're happy yeah. to, to come we really want to go both of us really badly cool and, and, and you know every single Singapore tech investor has been here I'm yeah, sure yeah. of it yeah, over the last few years tiger right. kicking and yeah. what I will say is that most of them are they come out of it and then most of them are quite surprised at how advanced and how sophisticated the, the, the founders are here uh, I think that there's still a ways to go, but um, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised on that front. I also think that if you wait too much longer, the cityscape is going to change so much that you're gonna you're gonna miss out on some of the charm. Yeah, I'd like to be there before this year's over or before the first quarter of next year's over. And to be fair, right. my sort of faith in humanity means that I won't be surprised, but I'll be happy. In other words, mm-hmm. I'm not shocked when humans outperform other people's expectations because I think that's yeah. kind of our job. But boy, it'll make me super happy to be in Yangon or wherever else I go and just see like, you know, I'll say kids because it's mostly kids just like kicking butt because now they have freedom, right? This is the beautiful thing for me is that there's never been a better generation to be like a young Burmese person. Yeah, I agree. And they have the ability to make more social impact than, than most of their counterparts globally. Yeah. 
correct. Probably by a long shot, actually. Okay, so going back to what I do. So I, I came here with the intention and with the excitement of trying to map out and understand the consumer landscape here. As you have a country that is emerging um, and virtually no information about them, um, there is a lot that you can do if you can try to collect that. Um, our, our raison d'etre is to better understand consumers here, how they pay, when they pay, what they pay, or what they buy, and, 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 um, and then get predictable about what they're going to buy. The way that I go about that is I have a coalition loyalty program, which means that there's many, 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 many merchants. Uh, actually, there's almost 3,000 merchants, if, if we're getting more specific. We install tablets at their point of sale that basically allows for the consumer to come and scan their their phone app um, at their point of purchase. So if you're getting your haircut or your bubble tea or your, your karaoke session, you pay for it and then you scan and then you get your points and then with those points you get free things. And the reason we did it this way is because there's a lot of different challenges in Myanmar we needed to account for. One was that there was no technical capabilities on the merchant side or largely on the consumer side. Um, many of our merchants are still writing receipts on paper. You know, you're not, you, you can't build something that requires them to install and support. So these tablets are installed by us. We basically tell the merchants, don't ever touch it. And <laughs> this, we is Jay, this is Jay yeah. Zhu, yeah? This is Jay Zhu, yeah. Don't we touch monitor it. it remotely. Don't touch it. <laughs> Don't touch it. Um, <laughs> we monitor it remotely, and then if there's a problem, we'll tell them to reboot it or something like that. But if you look at the the um, the way that it works, we give the control of the experience to the consumer. What does that mean? Uh, so let's say I'm a consumer, right? Like you said, I walk in and I get a bubble tea because I'm unlikely to get my hair cut too yeah. often, right? But bubble tea right. I could actually buy every day. So I walk into my favorite tea shop. What am I actually doing? And what's on my so, phone that allows right. me to do it? So you would open, you open your Jezu app, which is uh, on your phone. And in there, there's a QR code that is specific to you. And you touch the tablet, that is the Jezu tablet that's sitting in front of you. Right. And you scan your QR code against that. So you don't need the cashier to say, do you want to collect points? You don't need the cashier to ask you anything. You can just do it. It's right there. It's in, in front of your face. And you can just do it yourself. And so what's the benefit to me and what's the benefit to the merchant? Right. So for you, you get to collect points and then get free things like selfie sticks and, and, and you know, lipstick if you're so inclined. Um, and then for the merchants, they actually have the capabilities to do online to offline marketing, which they, they don't really today, um, as well as to be able to better understand their customers for those of them who care about their customers and being able to um, offer rewards to to um, encourage repeat and loyal customers, so repeat sales and, and um, things like that. So the merchants don't pay for the program, nor do the consumers. What we do is we charge partners. Uh, partners meaning the ones that want the brands that want to advertise on there, the brands that want to have their items as reward items. Um, you can advertise on the platform, so the, the, the groups that are advertising. And we're just now starting to allow payment acceptance. So as with every other country in Asia, um, mobile money is a living story here. And um, we don't want to do mobile money ourselves, but what we would like to do is facilitate payments on our tablets. So um, if you go to a couple of our stores right now, you can pay with 
Wave, which if you know Myanmar, Wave is one of the really large money companies that's here. It's mm -hmm. the it's a it's a big um, it's a JV between um, or it's joint it's joint owned by Telenor, which is the telco, yep. and um, Yoma Bank, which is one of the big banks there. What's it, what's, um, what's the bank? Yoma Y O M A. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So they uh, they have a, a a mobile money initiative here called Wave Mobile Money. So some of our merchants, you can go and you can. At, you know, as you're paying for your bubble tea, instead of paying cash, you can use your Wave account, and then if you do that, then you get extra points and stuff like that. So, so think, you know, Starbucks app built for many merchants. Um, so that's what we're doing right now. Wow! And what's the growth there like? You know, it's uh, in in some regards way, way, way slower, and and some much faster. So our merchant network grew like our merchant network was ridiculous in terms of how quickly we grew it. And our sales, I mean, our close rates were anywhere between 80 and 90%, depending on what we were doing and how quickly we could get out there and talk to these owners and stuff like that. It was crazy because everyone was like, okay, sure, yeah, I'd love to try this. And on the consumer side, it just was a little bit more difficult in terms of just there's a lot of education, right? There's just a lot of education. And then app distribution is really costly here because, you know, people don't have... Um, Google Play accounts, and for the longest time, they were mostly Chinese phones here, so they were blocked from using any Google services. That's changing dramatically, but for the longest time, I mean, you were talking about an audience that couldn't access Google Play. Wait, but tell so me, had, tell me how that works. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but tell me how that works. So, because yeah. the phone is manufactured in China, yeah, even though it's not resident in China, the Google Play yeah. services, so all of the sort of all the services, so push notifications, yep, all of blocked. it, it's blocked. Yeah, it's blocked. Interesting. I didn't. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah because like I understand in China that, and that makes sense to me. I get it. I understand it. I'm not like I have no political view on it. But once the phone leaves the country, I didn't know that those things still remained. No, like for the for the first few years here, you had like seven percent of your market share was Huawei, so you couldn't use Google Play services. Interesting. So we had to work around that, you know. You had to use. We had a we had a service that we used for our push notifications that is now um, defunct, but we couldn't use Google Play services because most of our most of our users were on on Chinese phones, um, and so it's the same with Google Play. You could download apps from the Play Store, so you would you would go to the One Mobile Market, which is a Chinese um, app store. Or you would give people um, download links from Dropbox direct on your Facebook page or on your email. Wow, so and the, the most popular was an app here. It's called Zapia, which is a Bluetooth sharing. And so you would send um, you would send files back and forth, like APK files through Bluetooth technology um, between you and your friends. So those are the ways that they would handle it. That's changing. It's changing pretty dramatically. But these are the types of things that you kind of have to know. Well, like, sorry, you, you, you know when you're here and you don't think about when you're not here and you kind of get caught. Like, certainly when I first got here, I got caught with so many of these things where I was like, what? What? <laughs> <Right>. like, just, <laughs> we'll just download it on Google Play and we'll figure it out. But that doesn't work. Yeah. But there must be no. a ton of stuff like that, right? And there was. There was the font support. I mean, everyone talks about the Myanmar font issues, and they, they're still here, but, you know, you work around them because, you know, the Myanmar font, the Unicode font is not the font that everyone uses here because it's really, really difficult. So everyone uses an unsupported font that's really old and not indexable. 
So it's just all these little things that you find out when you start working in technology over here. But we, all of us over here, are so used to it that we're like, oh yeah, right, of course. <laughs> but again, that's again. This talks about the adaptability that we were talking about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you just people just figure out how to behave and exist in a particular ecosystem, regardless. Yeah. And I, I yeah. really strongly believe that once you get through that phase, when everything gets easier, the mm-hmm. the concept of frictionless, you know, payments, frictionless commerce, and everything just feels like ten times easier than it actually is because it was so hard prior. I agree. I agree. And, you know, I will even say that the, the technology kids or the techie kids that I meet today are really, really different, actually, than the generation before them. And you're not talking about a whole generation. You're talking about four years, right? right. Um, <laughs> but but trust me when I say it feels like a generation, Michael. Mm. It's very different. But this is, this, um, this is what you mean when you talk about the speed at which things are changing, yeah. right? Yeah, because the kids the kids that you met four years ago who actually had internet access or actually knew how to internet how to access the internet were all hackers. They had to be. You had to be able to hack around servers to access the internet because it was completely blocked here. Right. The the, the, the kids who are now, you know, like twenty two years old and starting tech companies never had to do that because the internet even though it wasn't always easy to get to and not always um, like cheap, it wasn't blocked, which is different. It's a totally different thing when it's blocked than when it's expensive, right? Yeah, and I mean, let's be fair. The term hacker has been ruined over the past five or six years. In the fair old days, enough. it was actually like, you know, it was a cool thing to be a hacker because it just meant you could muck around with the technology and figure things out and hack your way around right. a system and figure out like how to make things useful. And that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I know exactly that's what, what I'm But I want to be clear about it because today a hacker is, you know, is some 17-year-old kid with a hood on sitting in his basement in dark glasses <laughs> drinking coffee for 26 hours a day even though they're only 24 hours and trying to, you know, break into a bank system. But that's not what it always that's was. That's not right? what and, I mean. and even if, even if you go back and read some of the old, you know, books, I think it was a book called The Cuckoo Nest or something. But if you go back, or the Cuckoo, I can't remember what it was. But, yeah, there were people that were doing that. But there was no – it wasn't like it is today. No, hacker, no, and all, and what I do mean is your first definition, which is like people who are you know trying working around systems to try to get try to get access, right? Like in, in however that they can. Um, again, it's that sort of innovation that um, that need an innovation story. Same so, way. So talk to me about funding, and this is really just me getting educated. Like, sure. how do people fund their companies in Myanmar, and how did you fund yours? And like, what's the angel investment scene like? And you know, like yeah. who are the important people? It's changing so like? different. It's so dramatic, Michael. Um, so actually, and, and one of the things that I do do, and just very recently, um, I started to uh, advise a venture fund that is based out of Singapore, and we have a couple of um, investments in Myanmar right now. Can you say who? Can you say who it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have one that is called Chatsat, which is a freelancing platform that is Burmese and 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 um, that came from the accelerator here, which is there's one accelerator here. It's called Handyar. Um, we have another one that does last mile logistics. It's called Cargo with a K. And then we do one, uh, we, we just closed one, and I'm on the board of this one, um, of a, lang- a natural language processing technology. It's pretty much the only sort of deep tech AI type of technology that I know of in the country. 
And I'm super excited about them because they're doing all kinds of language, uh, natural language processing and indexing um, against the two fonts that we're talking about. And what's the name of that company? Is that the Bindex company? Uh, it's called Bindex. Yeah, it's called Bindex. But, and who's the investor? So can you mention who they are or you don't want to say? No, no. Um, so the, the, the fund. investors meaning like who else is investing in no, this? No, so the, who was, you said you... Who are you, our LPs? Oh, okay. You, so we the fund is called VIMIC, V-I-M-I-C, and that's the Volpez Innovative something, something, something. Volpez over in Singapore is the one that um, it, it, it's, it's a subset of theirs. So it's the Myanmar Fund for Volpez in oh, Singapore. And that's awesome. V-U-L-P-E-S. Got it. Okay. And the reason why the reason why I agreed to advise them is because they really were one of the very first to actually put their money where their mouth is. So right. There's been a lot of different groups that come in. There have been angel investors here, um, and there are groups that do some angel investments in the past. So yeah, there, there, there's been a few. There's no doubt about that. Um, but this is sort of the very first of the very VC kind of crowd to put real money into the market, which is. Um, what is exciting to me about this. And, and so when you're asking me about how did I get investments and what is it like, so there is, there was, there was up until recently and probably to a certain extent still is a much easier, much, uh, there's a sexy story about Myanmar, right? Yeah, um, a, few, a few years ago, there was very, a very sexy story about Myanmar and everyone wanted a piece of it and it was a gold rush. And I think that that has toned down tremendously. Which is fine, right? I mean, that's fine. Right. Yeah. It needed to. It really needed to. But so my early my early seed and angel investment um, was relatively straightforward in, in the perspective of I'm, first of all, I was in my 40s. I had 20 years of technology experience. I, you know, obviously was very, very international. And I was sitting in Myanmar and there were no Myanmar stories to be had. Wow. So, so I had a nice package and the media picked us up and you know media loved us conferences loved me because i speak english because i'm female whatever so there's all of these reasons why for me it was it was probably i had it easier than a lot of my counterparts um and that's not to say it was easy but you know like right. easy i think i definitely had a leg up in that regard um the local kids the first wave of them like that first generation that i that we talk about here internally mm-hmm. um, also benefited from that but they were by and large a group of wealthier or more well-off Burmese who had the money to go overseas and be educated overseas or, you know, to have a, an education that allowed for them to have sort of tech exposure and tech knowledge. Yep. Um, so you had a group of startup founders that came out of there, and, and many of them are still around, but Bindes was one of them. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple of car marketplaces and job marketplaces and house marketplaces and stuff like that. So there, there's a couple of them still around. And they had a lot of angel funding, again, because... Not because, but angel funding was, was back then a little bit easier, but it wasn't in Myanmar. You know, like your angel investments were definitely outside of Myanmar at that really? point. Absolutely. There were no angel investors here. There was one there was one company that did some angel investing, but actual angel investors, there were none. There were some that traveled in from Thailand or traveled in from Singapore. Right. Um, but there were no Burmese angel investors. And, and how about now? Because to me, now there are. Now there are. Now you're definitely starting to see that. You're, st- you're starting to see the Burmese people really sit up and take notice around technology and be really interested in it. 
there are varying degrees of sophistication because, as you know, angel investing is um, is a unique kind of game in sure. terms of equity. Like you know, these are these these are people here. The high net worth individuals in Myanmar who would be the angel investors mm-hmm. are, again, generally speaking, um, they're from businesses where they understand assets. Right. And this is not an asset game. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's not a physical asset for sure. So it's no, not a, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, uh, uh, almost anyone who's made money here made it with an airline or a bank or a, an a hotel building. or something. Yeah, yeah or a, a hotel, factory. whatever. But an asset or a mine, you know, even yep. when you're talking about gold or, or or oil and gas and stuff like that. So you're talking about assets, and so there's still there's still a bit of education to go on there. But what you are starting to see is larger groups of angel, or sorry, large angel groups coming together, and largely led by Burmese overseas individuals who have some tech experience who have come back. I'd love to. So meet you see people. a lot of that, where the, the Burmese repats, we call them repatriates, repats, yeah. are coming back and leading some of these um, circles of angel, uh, whatever, whatever they are, right? Um, networks, um, or even just individuals doing angel um, angel investing. So, yeah, I'd love to meet some of these angels. You have to do that sure. more if me if you can, because you know, again, that's just one of the things that we talk about in the context of what makes a great tech startup ecosystem. And mm-hmm. as you said earlier, um, and maybe this is a good way to end. But as you said earlier, like. There were some corporations that were doing angel investing, but that's to me is like jumbo shrimp, right? It's an oxymoron mm-hmm. in the sense that you really want your angels to come out of a few categories, one of which is former founders that have made some money and they sort of come back into the ecosystem by supporting yep. newer founders. But also, like you said, high net worth individuals that see where the future is going and they mm-hmm. take some of the money that they've made in hard assets, like you said, whether it's hotels or roads or mm-hmm. you know, building hospitals – and then take a mm-hmm. portion of their income and invest that or their assets and invest that in tech startup companies with the knowledge that, you know, 50% of them could fail or more, right? And I don't yeah. wanna, I'm going to take flack for that 50%, but I believe there's a way to be a better investor than most people who are just spraying and praying. But that, that's an argument for another time. Yeah. And we could go on for so long with that one too. <laughs> yeah, we can arm wrestle over that one for a while. When you come over here, we'll have that conversation. Yeah. I'd over look, years. I'd, I love to, um, and we will go. Like we've we've announced publicly that we will come to Yangon and we will mm-hmm. try to meet people there, and you will be one of them um, mm-hmm. in person. But we want to we want to know more, right? One of the things that we realize is that you know we can have an opinion from really far away, but it's not valid because you really have to be in the market to understand the market. It's true for any kind of market, right? Um, yeah. And we look forward to doing that. Um, Look, I think it's, I think this is a great spot to end, if you don't mind. I'd love to talk to you again. And I just really want to say thank you for taking the time to do this. This has been super fascinating for me. And, <laughs> but it has. I mean, I learned a lot. And I also love – we talked about this before, right, earlier. I love the, um, the sort of symmetry of the story, right? <laughs> no, because it's awesome. And, and you know, again, your your mother, for as much as she's worried about you and for as crazy as your sister thinks you've always been, it, it, no, but it serves you well, right? And yeah. sometimes you have to come out of, you know, that really difficult situation. And as we said, it permeates everything that you do. Things mm-hmm. seem a lot less crazy when your life experience starts by 
you know, running away from something that's so scary and so terrifying. Yeah, it's all about your baseline, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. There's a yeah. certain amount of anchoring that goes on, right? It's like if my biggest problem is, you know, <clears throat> I forgot to put the snow tires on my Mercedes, then it things are <laughs> your perspective is skewed. But if my biggest problem is some of my relatives don't have any food, everything yeah. has a much better way of kind of working itself out, right? And you'll hear right. me say this a lot, but like I deeply believe that no individual day is fatal. Your parents proved that. Mm-hmm. Um and you just move on, and that's the stoicism we were talking about, and the nobility of that in um, in Asian women that I really think is beautiful. But that's just me. And I think that's a really good philosophy for founders to bear in mind that no yeah. day is fatal, no one day is fatal. I agree. It, you, you forget that as a founder for sure. Yeah, because every moment seems so important, and yet you realize, <laughs> you know, if you if you look back on it twenty five years later, you're like, well, that wasn't that really important. That's assuming you remember it. Yeah, correct. Exactly. But that tells you how insignificant it was at the time. I mean, exactly. in retrospect, right? So, yes, exactly. <laughs> Michael, it was a pleasure. And um, obviously, you're welcome. And let me know. I'm happy to meet up with you and to do this again. Um, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.